We have so much to be thankful for. December is upon us. It's hard to even believe. It's just kind of sneaking around on bias. A lot of great things are going on. One year ago, this Sunday, we had our first fruits Sunday with the uh, Vision 220 campaign. We made our commitments in, in November, and then we had our first opportunity to start giving on that one year ago today. And so uh, just to give you a, an update on where we are at the halfway point, two years to make a 20-year impact, we thought we'd just kind of give you a little picture, a little snapshot here. First of all, the, the picture of how we calculated what we were looking at. There's my hand. There it is. Uh, we, we took commitment cards so in November. People made commitments of how much they were going to trust the Lord for for the next two years. You had another group that didn't give commitment cards, but they have a history of giving faithfully through the ministry here. And we looked at that and compiled that. And then we looked at the coming year as newcomers would come and join us. And, and then we projected from that that we were expecting over the two-year period of time about a $16 million giving uh, record from you as the congregation. And so I looked at that and went, yeah, that kind of might be a little ambitious side here. Here's the update. $541,000 ahead. That's not bad. That's, that's worthy of a little praise to the Lord for, right? That's exciting because we know there's two things there. One, we have an incredibly faithful God that, like David said in, in the, the scriptures, who am I? And who are these people that we should give so generously as this? It's the Lord's hand who's made that possible. And as the coming year uh, unfolds, we're excited to see what he's going to do. So in the first quarter of 2016 or thereabouts, maybe not quite in that period of time, maybe early in that time, I'm not sure, the elders will be bringing to you some information because a part of what we were looking to do with that was expand worship space. And, uh, and that's a part of where we're still heading in that. And they'll give you some more information about that coming up in the first quarter. But we're excited about it. If you're a newcomer and you were not able to be a part of that or things have changed and you want to, the next screen will show you there's a place where you can go and find out more about that, uh, pray.org slash vision220, and you can get up to speed on that. So good. God is good. It's one year ago. We're halfway through, and God has allowed us to be that far ahead in the process. So we're very, very thankful. Today, we do the second of three parts on lessons on lordship. Uh, last week, we talked about Christ as the vine and what it means to abide in the vine and to be bearing much fruit for his glory. Today, we're going to be at the Lord's Supper table. And so it's very important that we prepare our hearts for what we're going to do there and also see how this lesson in lordship includes a very, very particular picture of Christ as the Lamb of God, the Lamb to whom we appeal for our salvation the one who is the Savior of all. And so I invite you this morning to turn to John chapter 1. We're going to look at that as our starting point, as John the Baptist is making known something that is absolutely astounding to him, that he has recognized that this Jesus that he's known about is now clear to him that that is God's Lamb. And so he's been baptizing uh, and, and calling people to repentance. And then in verse 29 of John chapter 1, we begin with these words, uh, from the scriptures, helping us understand what was going on. He says, the next day, he, John the Baptist, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose, I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness. He says, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. 
And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. And the next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. It's an amazing picture. Let's pray together and ask God to open our eyes. Father, when you say behold, you mean look at it. And we want to look at this lamb this morning in a very particular way that will open our eyes to see and marvel at the wonder of all that you have for us in Christ. We thank you for this privilege of being able to just think for these moments together this morning as we come to your table and and remember there what our salvation costs you. Lord, we want to see that this was not some late devised plan that you came up with to fix something, but Lord, it had been a part of your eternal purpose and a mystery that we could never fully understand. But what uh, is there, Lord, is something we can fully embrace with great joy and gratitude. And so, Lord, hear us as we pray and ask you to speak to our hearts so that this morning might be as much experienced as a time of learning. May Christ speak in a powerful way for his sake, we pray. Amen. This is that time of year, December, when things start getting really exciting around town. Uh, It's one of those times when you get up in the morning and the sunrise is just different in December, isn't it? It's just just a little different. And of course, having sunrise, I mean, it's one thing, but sunset at noon. I mean, that's amazing when you get the chance to experience that. It just looks different in the skies. But but you want to come out and you see one of those afternoon sunsets and you, you just look around. You want somebody to tell, look at that. Would you look at that? That is amazing. And you see it and it's awesome to behold. Or, or if you go this time of year down to the mall or to Target or to Walmart, someplace where you're taking your kids with you, you're not going to have to juice them up to get them excited, you know, because they want to kind of grab you by the hand and, and they want to take you places where there, there are people like Mickey and Minnie waiting for them. And they want to take you to the old Build the Bear place and they want to take you over to the Lego store. They sh- and when you get there, they're not going like, well, you know, now we're here. I don't know what we're going to do. No, they're saying, here, look at this. Look at, look at, look at this one, right? Here. Look at this one. Not that I'm saying that I want this for Christmas, but the barcode right here will scan in and you can get that online for less than this even. But I'm not saying, you know, and they're just going like, look, 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 look. And they're excited about what you're showing them. And, and, and that's just the dads. And then the, and then the kids, no, it's just, the kids have that excitement. It's just a wonderful thing. Some of you are late catching it this morning. This is not the 8 o'clock service. But here, here we have this excitement about what we want to see and what we want people to look at. Our, our kids have this thing when, if you come to our house, uh, our, our kids used to say, uh, if dad says, you know, I want to show you something on the computer, be afraid. Be very afraid. You will be there for hours. Uh, he'll show you music videos and he'll pull out photographs and he'll take you to the and he'll, just, just don't do it. Just don't do it. Why do I want to do that? Because I'm excited about what I want to show them. I want to say, look at, look at this. Look at, oh, and another thing. While I'm thinking about it, look at this. It's something that excites me and I want somebody else to share it. John the Baptist is having that moment here in John chapter 1. Jesus is coming by and he says, look. That's what the word, behold, we, we've made it kind of a Bible word, behold, and it sounds, you know, kind of churchy, but, but he's basically saying, focus on that, pay attention to this, look at that. That's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I'm not talking about somebody who's just a peripheral being. I'm t- this is the long-awaited one. This is the one that, that we have been taught about as, as part of our Jewish family for generations, centuries, 
hundreds of thousands a year now. We've been looking at this and, and going back to the prophecies of 700 years ago, going back all the way as far as you can go, this one, he is the Lamb of God. And he pointed to Jesus. What are we supposed to do with that? We're supposed to heed the words of John the Baptist this morning. That's why we're here. We've come to say to everyone who's gathered here, we're going to come to the table of the Lord at the end of our time of worship this morning. And before we get there, we want you to be able to say, my Lord and my God, what have you done? How have you blessed me with the Lamb of God who takes away sin like mine and draws me into your eternal presence? What right do I have but to say worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world and mine specifically? We want that to be our response when we come to the table. And some of you are thinking, I need to rehearse that because I'm not ready for that. Well, I hope in the next few minutes you will get there because we're going to look at, at six snapshots, six photo bombs of Jesus showing up through the scriptures. And we're going to take you just on this little journey as we walk through the process of seeing these visions, these pictures, these portraits of the Lamb of God. And we're going to start right back where the need began for a lamb. We're going to start back in Genesis. And in chapter 3, the need first arose. As Adam and Eve fell into sin, they rebelled against God. They became keenly aware that they were sinners. They became keenly aware that they had reason to be ashamed. And their guilt was absolutely devastating to them. And they wanted to hide. And so the Lord God came looking for them, it says, in the cool of the day. And he says, where are you? And they said, we were afraid. We've hidden. Why are you hiding? Because we're ashamed. We're naked and ashamed. And in verse 21, we get this incredible picture about God's response to their need for forgiveness. And he meets that need for forgiveness with mercy. And here's what he says in verse 21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Prior to now, they've not had need for clothes. They've been in the garden. Nobody's ashamed. Nobody's hiding anything. Nothing's wrong. Now it says that they are naked and ashamed and God provided a garment of skin for them. Question for you. Where do you get the skin? Skins are us, right outside the garden gate. There's a store there that sells skin. No, there was not a skin and tanned hide shop near the garden. Where did he get the skin? An animal had to die for him to take that skin. All right, so here's, here's what I think. I believe, and this is not in this text, so if you're saying, I didn't see that in the text, it's not in there. This is my conclusion that the skin that he put on them to cover them was a lamb skin. I don't know that, can't prove that, there's nothing in the scriptures that says that exactly, but that's one of those questions in heaven. You go, by the way, what kind of skin was that? And what else? I mean, because lambskin is very soft and it's very comfortable but there's also the picture of a lamb being slain or some animal is being slain i'm guessing it was a lamb to take care of covering providing a cover for their sin okay the jewish holiday yom kippur the day of atonement the word kippur actually means to provide it's a cover that's the idea that's there and so we're seeing an atoning sacrifice of some animal I'm guessing it's a lamb, to provide a cover for Adam and Eve right at the very beginning. So the need, shame, guilt, 
a desire to hide because of their sin against God. God's provision of that, I will sacrifice an animal, a lamb perhaps, and provide a covering so that they will be hidden and they will be covered. Interesting picture. Need immediately met by the mercy of God. Then we have next chapter. Adam and Eve have kids, you know. And uh, Cain and Abel, remember the old joke, how long did he hate his brother? As long as he was able, I know. And so that, that was a part of that. And so one sacrifice was accepted when it came time for worship and one sacrifice was not. Abel made a sacrifice from the firstlings of his flock. Cain made an offering from another source, from the grain, from the seed of the ground. Cain's sacrifice was not accepted. Abel's sacrifice was accepted. Verse 4 of of Genesis 4. I I always, when I was a kid, read that and thought, well, that's just patently unfair. Because, again, I had three brothers, so I had this sibling thing understanding of how this went. But he says, no. Abel, on his part, brought of the firstlings of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. He he didn't have regard for Cain and his. What's the story here? What's the offering for? It's an atoning sacrifice for sin. Hebrews 9 tells us in the New Testament that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness for sin. You can't give a grain offering and expect there to be a covering or a forgiveness of sin without the shedding of the blood of someone to be a sacrifice. So Abel brings a sacrifice of part of his flock. Now, he could have had a flock of geese. I I understand. I'm thinking it was a flock of sheep, and I'm thinking that like with Adam and Eve in the garden, I believe that that sacrifice was probably a lamb as well. Okay, so if you want to argue those points, I've got no, no gun there. I've got no bullets. I've got nothing I can argue with. This, this is my opinion. That's where that is. So that's where I think. What we do know is that an animal gave its life in order to cover Adam and Eve. An animal gave its life to be an atoning sacrifice for the sin offering, the burnt offering that was offered by Abel. We do know that part. So you've got this picture, all right? So we move from the need then to the provider of that need. Let's look ahead. In Genesis, we'll stay here. You're thinking, how long do you think we've got? Well, we're in Genesis, we'll be okay. Because we jump all the way over to chapter 22. Abraham and Sarah have had a son in their old age. They've had a child. They never thought that they would. And now there's a child who's been born to them. They're excited as they can be about that. This has been a glorious experience for them. And so now it's time for them to offer their worship. They're going through the the process of offering their uh, sacrifices through the years as God has prescribed. And now the Lord says specifically to Abraham, I want to take the son of your old age, your son that you've prayed for, the son of laughter that you've longed for and has come. I want you to take him to the mountain that I'm going to show you. And there I want you to sacrifice him on the altar. Excuse me? You want what? And God led him that way. Abraham trusted God. He believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so he goes and uh, in chapter 22, they're walking along and the servant's with them and they've got the, the donkey with the wood and stuff. And, 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 and the son says, Dad, um, I, I see the wood and I see the fire. I've got a knife. Uh, where's the sacrifice? And here's what he said in verse eight. Abraham says, God will provide for himself the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And so the two of them walked on together. Isaac's good with that. God will provide for himself a lamb. And then they get up there and they, they build the altar and then they lay the wood out and then they're ready to go and then the son is bound. 
an incredible moment as Abraham's trusting the father. Verse 13, then Abraham raised his eyes and he looked and behold behind him a ram caught in the thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and he offered him up for a burnt offering in the place of his son. First testimony of in the place of showing up here as a substitute for his son, this ram in the thicket that God provided. Son, God will provide a lamb. God will do that. And so here we have God providing. Here's the requirement, a a blood sacrifice for sin because sin has a wage. The wage of sin is death. There must be the death of those who have sinned against the holiness of God. Therefore, the life is in the blood. There has to be the pouring out of the life in order to pay the penalty for sin. This animal has been slain as a representative of you. And this, as First Peter says in chapter 1, that, that not by goats and rams and bulls and stuff, that's not going to really atone for a human sin. But that is pointing to something. And we already know what that something is. But let's just pretend we don't. Let's just keep walking through. And so here we have the picture. God will provide. So where there's a need, God provides. There is a provision of a ram here. God is taking care of it. Now let's jump on over a few hundred years more. Moses is in Egypt, not making friends and influencing people positively. He's not, he's not got Pharaoh in a happy place. And, and there are now nine plagues in to the promises that if you do not let my people go, this will happen to the, to the Egyptians. And, and by this point, it's, it's getting really dicey for the relationship between Pharaoh and Moses. And so the angel of the Lord comes and brings a message to Moses. And here's what he says in chapter 12, verse 3. He says, I want you to speak to all the congregation of Israel saying, on the 10th of this month, they are each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. And then in verse five, your your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. And you may take it from the sheep or from the goats. And then verse seven, moreover, they shall take some of the blood and they shall put it on the two doorposts and on the lintel of the house in which they eat it. And the blood shall be a sign for you on the houses. This is verse 13. The blood shall be for you a sign on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. So let's, let's put this together. There's a plague coming. And this plague is going to strike the firstborn of every household in all the land of Egypt. And God says to his people, Israel, through Moses, he said, you tell the people this. They need to each household get a lamb. And then they're to slay the lamb and they're to take the blood of the lamb and they're to take that blood and they're to put it on the doorpost of the house and then on the lintel of the house, the the head of the door. You get the picture there? Blood, put it on the door. That, that remarkably looks like a cross to me. I'm not sure why, but that, that motion itself is an interesting picture. So you slay the lamb, and then when the angel of death comes, wherever I see the blood of the lamb, those who are in that house will be covered by the blood of the lamb, and no death will come to that house. This sounds remarkably like the gospel. You who are covered by the blood of the lamb shall not experience the death that everyone else is going to experience around you as the judgment of God falls upon that land, he says to the children of Israel. 
And when the blood of the lamb is seen, the angel will pass over those houses where the blood of the lamb has appeared. And life will remain there and freedom and escape from bondage will take place. And all who are not under the blood of the lamb will perish in that land as the angel strikes them at that point. The blood of the lamb of God is a featured part of the gospel message. The lamb of God who was slain. That's what, remember John said, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. How did he do that? Because of the slaying of the lamb, the blood was poured out, the covering of sin was taken care of. So we have in this picture a substitute here showing up. We've got a need that has been declared. Sinners are there. We've got a provision that has been made that God will provide to the lamb. There is now a passing over of those who are under the blood of the lamb. And then if we jump on over to the prophet Isaiah for a moment. In chapter 53, we, we see there's an identity given to the lamb that he is a lamb who is personal and he is our substitute. And these other lambs are symbolically pointing ahead to this lamb who is to come. And so in Isaiah 53, he identifies who the lamb is and he's been writing about the Messiah who is to come and bring the kingdom to the people of God. And so he tells them, he says, this is the the lamb. He is going to be a Messiah who will be also a lamb. And therefore, as your Messiah and as the lamb, he will provide covering for your sin. And there will be atonement for those who put their trust in the lamb of God. And so in Isaiah 53, we, we read this great poignant passage about his description of who this lamb of God is. Surely our griefs, he, the lamb, the Messiah, surely our griefs, he himself bore and our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted, but he was pierced through for our transgressions. Listen to the language here, pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities and the chastening of our well-being fell upon him and by his scourging, we're healed. All of us, like sheep, have gone astray. Each one of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He's our substitute. He has caused the iniquity of us to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he didn't open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter and like a sheep that is silent before it shears, so he didn't open his mouth. Do you recall the trial of Jesus? taken as the innocent, spotless lamb before the trial, the mock trial. And instead of defending himself, instead of crying out injustice, the the innocent lamb of God said nothing and was beaten, scourged, crushed for our iniquity. And he took our sin upon himself. And he paid the penalty that we should have paid. It's the lamb of God who has done this for us. And, and Isaiah said, and it's not just the symbolic lamb of the, the sacrificial system here. This is Jesus. No, he's, excuse me, not Jesus yet. He just knows it's Messiah. He says, Messiah is coming and he will be this lamb. And he will be the one who leads his people out of their sin and the darkness of that into the radiant splendor of the light of the glory of God. This is who he is. Now we come to John the Baptist in John chapter 1. And there's where John 
knowing Isaiah and John knowing Moses and John knowing Abraham and John knowing of Cain and Abel and John knowing of Adam and Eve. He knows those things and he sees Jesus coming and he says, look at that. Pay pay attention, people. Look, look at that. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's who he is. He said, I didn't, I didn't know him. Now, somebody asked between services, how could, how could John the Baptist not know him? I mean, he was cousins, right? And he left in the womb when Mary announced, how did he not know him? I, I don't know what all he knew or didn't know. What I know at this point, he didn't have any idea that Jesus the Christ was the Lamb of God until he said the Holy Spirit came down and rested upon him at his baptism. He says, that's when the one who sent me showed me, then I'll know. When the Holy Spirit came on Jesus, wow. That's the son of God. That is the lamb. And so he gives him who had been identified as the Messiah in Isaiah, a name in John 1. Who is this Messiah? He's the lamb of God. Who is this lamb of God? It's Jesus, the son of the most high God. Glory be to the lamb who was slain for the forgiveness of his people. Now, after there, we see him going to the cross. We, we see him paying the penalty for our sin there. We see him coming to the place toward the end of his time on the cross saying, it is finished. Translated literally, the debt has been paid. It is is over. Everything necessary for sin to be forgiven has been accomplished now. He now becomes not just lamb who was slain. He acts as the high priest who takes the blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies. And he approaches the father with the blood of his own life, the blood of the lamb, and presents it on behalf of sinners like you and me who need a savior. And he says, Father, the blood of the lamb has been shed once for all. The high priest and the system of of judicial sacrifices and ritualistic sacrifices, the old, that was all pointing ahead to now. And every year a high priest had to go and take the blood of the lamb into the Holy of Holies to atone for the sins of the people. And now once for all, the lamb of God, whose blood was shed on the cross, takes the blood sacrifice into the holiest of holies, not that which was made by hand in the temple or in the tabernacle, but the holy of holies. And he presents his offering, his sacrifice to the father. And the Father accepted his sacrifice. Anyone who trusts in your name and believes in what you have done, they will be forgiven of their sin. Once for all, done. And then he vindicated that verdict. And Jesus was resurrected from the dead. Spent time with his disciples. Tell you got to go tell people about this. You got to go around the world declaring, bearing witness. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You got to go tell all the nations this, and you got to tell them. Now, don't do it till you've been endued with power from on high on the day of Pentecost. Don't go yet because you're not ready. But when the Spirit comes, you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, to the uttermost parts of the earth, telling them what you have seen and known. The Lamb has been slain. The blood sacrifice for sin has been paid in full. The Father in heaven has accepted it entirely. The Son of God has come now through the power of the resurrection to show you that he is alive forevermore. And now, don't be standing here looking at the skies, but I'm gone. And he ascended to the right hand of the Father, and he took his seat there. Nobody sits down in the Holy of Holies, but the Lamb of God did. Now, what? He's waiting. 
for the day when the Father sends him for his own, for those who know him and who have been cleansed from unrighteousness by the blood of the Lamb of God. So he takes John the Apostle. And he says, John, let me show you something. Looky here. And he takes him, and that's where we get the book of Revelation, the apocalypse. He takes him there, and in chapter 5, he takes him up and he shows him this picture of what's going to be in heaven. I want you to look at this. And in verse 12 and 13 in chapter 5, he says, you just write what you see. What is it that you saw? He says, they were saying with a loud voice all around this throne, they were saying, worthy is the Lamb. This is around the throne in heaven. What? I mean, we, th- we think, well, God, the Father is there. Yeah, he is. And Jesus, the Lamb of God, is there. And they're declaring with loud words of praise, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. That's what they're saying. Now, who was there saying this? Verse 13, every created thing which is in heaven, every created thing on the earth, every created thing under the earth, everything created on the sea, All things in them, I heard them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever, bowing down to the Lamb of God. Is that that something that you want to be a part of? I mean, that's, that's an incredible picture. Many years before we moved into this hotel ballroom and building there. I came to a concert here when this was the ballroom for the hotel at that time. And, and it was a Twyla Paris concert. Yeah, I'm old enough to remember Twyla. Yeah. She was probably just a baby at the time. And, and so she was doing a concert. And I remember the stage was set right up against the outside wall over here. And I was probably sitting on the floor on the front right over here. We got there late and there were no seats. And we, Kathy and I sat on the floor. And one of my favorite songs that she ever did was called Lamb of God. And a chorus, what a great, great statement. This is just what she says, because we, we want to know, how do, you, how do you worship the Lamb of God? How do you say this? Listen, listen to this chorus. Oh, Lamb of God, sweet Lamb of God, I love the holy Lamb of God. Oh, wash me in your precious blood, my Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. And then the, the verses around that, go look it up. You can find it on your computer. And listen to it. It's awesome. And you'll just sit there and you'll want to hear it again and again because you'll want to join your voice in with hers. I love the holy Lamb of God. I want to join all those around the throne declaring worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive glory and honor and power. And on and on they go. You remember Philippians? They said the same thing Paul was writing. He says, and, and one day is coming when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess of those and earth and under the earth and all that. He says, all of them are going to be confessing that Jesus is Lord. They're also going to be declaring, worthy is the Lamb of God. So that's the picture. There is a worthiness in this Lamb that makes us want to cry out, I love you and worship you and adore you, Lamb of God that you are. And so then you, you figure out that, that this Lamb has a wedding date set. How cool is that? The Lamb of God's getting married. Who is his wife going to be? Us. We're the bride of Christ. Can you imagine? All of creation shouts glory to his name, and he chooses us to be his bride, but not as we are, but as we shall be by his grace. 
And so in, in Revelation 19, he says in verse 7, let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to him for the marriage of the lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. Okay, time out. Is the bride ready? Are you ready? I mean, he says the bride has made herself ready. And that is a picture that this bride, that we are the bride of Christ, we need to be prepared in a way that we're worthy of the lamb. In holiness, in purity, in perfect righteousness, in conforming to his image in every way, transformed by the renewing of our minds. In every way, we are to be like a holy, pure, unblemished, spotless bride. Now, for those who've been around here for a few years, uh, as I'm preparing the last three sermons I get to preach as your senior pastor, you're going to have to put up with just a little bit of repeat here. But here's, here's something I've said again and again and again. I love weddings. Because my favorite moment, besides when I say your husband and wife, and I get to pronounce you that, and then they get to kiss, and it gets real mushy. But everything, I watch that. But the time, I'm standing out here, usually if the service is in this room, right about here, and the door opens back there, and the bride walks through. I'm not even marrying her, and I get weak need. I mean, there's, this girl is getting married this weekend, and she and her fiancé were in the, in the 920 service. And they were giddy. <laughs> they were like, that is so exciting what you said. And I said, it's totally true. He and I are going to be leaning against each other, holding each other up when we see the bride walk through that door. As a matter of fact, in this building, I, I asked the groom, just go over here and stand right here. You don't want to miss any of this so that you can see every step as the bride comes. Because she has made herself worthy for that day. She's prepared herself for that day. She has adorned in splendor like you've never, ever imagined. And every eye in the room, ladies, you tested this, looks first to her and then looks to the husband to see if he appreciates what he's getting. <laughs> you know? <laughs> and they look at her and said, oh, yeah, she's awesome. Do you understand? Do you, under, do you understand what you're getting here? You know? You are not worthy. You need to understand grace, unmerited favor from God on you, brother. And, and so here's the thing. In this picture, it's exactly the opposite. The groom is so glorious to behold, it will buckle our knees. And looking upon the, the Lamb of God is the groom. And he's saying, I am making my bride ready. Ready? Are you kidding me? How are we going to get ready? He says in Ephesians 5, he says, you husbands, you love your wives just as Christ also loved the church. Oh yeah, we got that. Oh no, we don't. We don't have that. He says, just as Christ loved her and what? And gave himself up for her. We haven't got that part down yet entirely, right? Why? That he might make her holy or sanctify her. Having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. That he might present to himself the church in all her glory. Having no spot or wrinkle or any such thing. But that she should be holy and blameless. That's what Jesus is up to. He is preparing his bride. And this period of time between when we came to Christ and when we go to the marriage feast of the Lamb of God is a process by which he is preparing us for our wedding day. And that means that we are to be holy. We're to have the mind of Christ. We're to keep the temple of the Holy Spirit pure. 
We are to make no provision for fleshly desires and, and lusts. We are to make sure that, that we are using these eyes to the soul, our, our eyes, and, and, and not looking upon stuff that is unworthy of him for our entertainment and for our lustful pleasures, that, to, to be drawn into that. He says, no, you're my bride. I want you to be holy. I want your marriage to be undefiled in this world, and therefore I've called you to purity. And marriage is so much more than just this civil union. It is the hearts of people mimicking, picturing, portraying the coming union of Christ Jesus and his church. That's why it's such a big deal. He said, I'm getting my bride ready. And so, folks, we need to be ready day by day because we don't know when it's coming. If we told the ladies here, hey, by the way, excuse me, I forgot to mention this, but your wedding's tomorrow there would be panic throughout the South. I mean, it would be, we can't get ready that fast. Jesus is readying us for that coming day. He is worthy of a pure and holy bride. He is worthy of our worship. And lastly, just to wrap this up, he is worthy of eternal glory because the radiant glory, the splendor of God, it says in 2 Corinthians, that's revealed on the face of Jesus. We behold the glory of God in the face of Christ. We behold the glory of God in the face of the Lamb of God. We see the beauty and the wonder and the glory of God revealed in him. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory in the same Lamb. That's what he's talking about here. So we come to chapter 21 of of Revelation. And in verse 22... He's describing the new city of Jerusalem and the, and the heavenly place that's now come. And he says, I, I saw no temple in it. Wait a minute, wait a minute, excuse me, it's heaven and there's not even a Baptist church there? What? No, he says there's no, there's no church, there's no temple, there's no tabernacle, there's no cathedral there. He says, I, I saw nothing like that there. I saw no temple in it for the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The Lamb, the Lord God Almighty, He is the temple. And then in verse 23, and the city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine on it for the glory of God has illumined it. And its lamp is, wait for it, his lamp is the lamb. He is the temple of that place. He is the lamp and the light shining from there. Next week, we're going to talk about the living waters that this lamb is for us as well. But he says, that's, that's where you're heading, folks, the Lamb of God. So when we hear John the Baptist say in rather succinct, almost terse phrases, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And then just a few verses later, behold the Lamb of God. We need to heed the message and look and be captivated and be smitten and be devoted to and eternally grateful to this lamb. We're coming to the Lord's table now. I'm going to ask our guys to go ahead and make their way up here because we want to be able to come to this table and we want to take that bread, that unleavened little cracker, little piece of bread, and remember that that's a picture of the Passover. And so there's a, there's a lamb involved in that picture of the Passover feast. We want to remember that's what they were doing the night that he was betrayed. They had the Passover feast, remembering God's passing over because of the blood of the lamb and the exodus of the people. We want to be able to remember the shed blood represented by this cup and remember that without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness for sin. Without the forgiveness of sin, there's no life. 
we owe it all to Christ who paid the debt in full as the lamb. And so we're going to come to the table. We're going to share these things together. And uh, as Peter said, it's not a problem for me to remind you of this stuff because this is so critical to our joy to know the Father has done this for us in Christ. So we're going to have a chance to pray. Ross is going to give thanks for this bread and this cup. And then we're going to come back together here and I'm going to share with you what we're going to do with that and then share the bread and cup with the people.